Brian McClanahan Show, episode 348. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast at Brian McClanahan. You'll find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B R I O N. McClanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I will give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to McClanahanAcademy.com, where it's always free to enroll. You get a free class when you do enroll, and you get the best deals on forthcoming courses and new courses. And I have a new course out, Southern Cultural and Intellectual History Part 2. It's an awesome course. You're going to want it, and if you're a McClanahan Academy subscriber, you're going to get the best deal. So head on over there, give me that email address, get that free class, 10 Myths of American History, and get the best deals. You can also support the show by clicking on that support tab on my webpage. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep these lights on, help keep the podcast going. You can get a book plate so you can get my autograph on one of my books. I have a new book out, Southern Scribblings. You're going to want that too. And if you get a book plate, you can get it signed. So it's a win-win. You can also support the show by going to Learn True, T-R-U-E, LearnTrueHistory.com. That is my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. You can uh, get great material there as well. I teach with Tom and a whole bunch of other great instructors. So it's a great website. Uh, also, economics, philosophy, it's not just history, so it's, it's, a, it's a fantastic site. And as always, share this podcast around on social media, wherever you frequent. Let people know you like it. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Rate this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. That also helps grow the audience. So do all the things you can do to get people on board with this idea of local decentralization. It's the way forward. Get your Brian McClanahan Show materials, your, my logo on t-shirts, hats. Just click on that shop tab on my page. All kinds of great ways to support the show. But as always, I do appreciate uh, listener-generated support. So if you got something you want me to talk about, send it my way. I don't always talk about what you want me to talk about, and, but I read everything you send me. So uh, that's a, a great way to do it as well. All right. I want to talk about an article today that appeared in the American Conservative. Uh, let's see. What date was it? Uh, August 20th, just a few days ago, and it's written by Casey Chalk, and the title is Woke Name Changes Are Just Bad Ethics. He calls it narcissistic and self-destructive and inimical to uh, societal preservation, which is true. I like where he goes with this article, though, because he talks about some things that I think are important to address with this particular problem in modern society. He takes a, a philosophical approach to it, which I think is important. Now, I've mentioned on this show before and on the Abbeville Institute podcast, by the way, if you, if you want to get me five times a week, head on over to the Abbeville Institute as well and get that podcast. I podcast there once a week. It comes out on Saturdays generally, I, sometimes Fridays, but generally on Saturdays. So you can get me five days a week rather than just four if you get on that Abbeville Institute podcast. And that's about all things Southern. So I do some different stuff there. But I have talked about this problem till uh, I, I can't talk about it anymore on that particular podcast. And I have mentioned it on this podcast as well. But we've got this process that's ongoing in America now, and there's been many articles written about it, how Confederate monuments are coming down, Confederate schools are named after Confederates, you know, even Washington and Lee University, 
there are there is an attack on that. I mean, Washington and Lee, right? Uh, we're talking about name-changing schools, streets. Anything that has to do with anything Confederate has to be changed. And that's just the first step. Because as Chalk points out, philosophically, you have to go to the next step. Now, this is all a broader attack on Western civilization, because that's really what's at stake here. And, and those that are honest will say these things. The people that aren't honest are hiding behind uh, the stupidity of Americans to think that it's going to, or the do-goodism do of Americans to think, what, well, we have these traitors, and these are people on the neoconservative side. These are the people on the right. We have these traitors. We have to get rid of them. But once we get rid of them, we'll stop there. We're going we're gonna to respect all these people. Well, we know the mob doesn't do that. I mean, look, they attacked the 54th Massachusetts Monument, right? They've, they've taken down monuments to and, and destroyed monuments to abolitionists. I mean, they don't care. The whole point of this movement is to st destroy anything traditional for any reason, because they really want history to start about 1975. And in McClanahan Academy, I have a course on Reconstruction, and it's you know, Reconstruction and Recreation up to 1975. I start in 1862. You can continue that now. I mean, look, I could, I could add a lecture to that talking about this kind of stuff, because certainly it's part of Reconstruction. It's a recreation of America, as Barack Obama pointed out in 2009. So I want to read this article, because I think he does a good job getting into some of the uh, philosophical positions here and what's happening. So he says, a Virginia school board on 23rd July changed its name from Lee High School, honoring Robert Lee, to instead honor recently deceased civil rights leader and Georgia politician John R. Lewis. What's important here, notice how he points this out. He says, look, a Virginia school board, this is in Virginia, so they changed the name of a high school in Virginia named Robert Lee High School to a Georgian politician. You see, where is the community in that? You're not, you're not honoring someone from Virginia. The school was honoring a Virginian, Robert E. Lee. If this had happened in Georgia, if you had Lee High School in Georgia and you changed it to John R. Lewis High School in Georgia, well, I mean, that could make sense because you're, you're still having local continuity there. But that's not the case. You see, Northern Virginia, and, and Casey Chalk is from Northern Virginia. That's actually where I was born as well. Uh, Northern Virginia is no longer Virginia. It's, it's simply transplants all over the place. And he talked about that in a different article uh, at an American Conservative years ago. But all you have is transplants. Um, and this is a problem. So he says, many schools are undergoing similar rebrandings, discarding names that honor presidents Woodrow Wilson and John Tyler, Revolutionary War heroes Edward Hand and Philip Schuyler, and poet Sidney Lanier, among others. Sidney Lanier is an interesting case. If you take my Southern, if you take the, the Southern Intellectual and Cultural History series, part three is going to cover Sidney Lanier. So I'm going to talk about him. Uh, but I mean, you know, this is these people are problematic because for one reason or another, I mean, Schuyler is, of course, a New Yorker from a very old Dutch family in New York, but he was a slave owner. Um, and he says there's even a mo movement to rename birds. And, of course, I talked about that on a, a podcast a couple of, uh, about a week ago. Named after John James Audubon and other ornithologists. In every case, activists say changes are necessary because the, these persons are responsible for slavery or racism. Discussing this development in a 20 July Washington Post op-ed, Kate Cohen argues, if we must n name our street schools and towns after people, 
a famously flawed and complicated bunch, we should be ready to rename them based on new information or new ethical standards. We should be proud of renaming them. The old name will always be part of our history. The new name is for now. This is, this is a, a, an important sentence, and I'm glad that Chalk pointed this out. It's all for the now. So the neoconservatives would say this comes from Jefferson, right? Jefferson thought a little revolution. You, you needed to change these things every so often. So every generation changed. The earth changes the, their present. The earth belongs to the living, right? It doesn't belong to the dead. It belongs to the living. So why should we have some type of attachment to the dead? And you could say that this is Jefferson at his furthest left. But Jefferson was also a traditionalist. He just... He, he respected the traditions of Virginia. He didn't always like them, but he respected them. And he certainly was part of that. And as he got older, he recognized these traditions were important in Virginia society. So Chalk continues, Such decisions reflect a desire to take history seriously, as argues Cohen. Yet this woke historical revisionism isn't really fundamentally about history. It's about, as Cohen herself hints at, ethics and philosophy. And bad ethics and philosophy at that. Uh, yeah, it's not really about history. It's, it's, and he says ethics and philosophy. He's talking about tradition. Now, this philosophy of tradition and the meaning of it. He says, Cohen calls these name changes representative of an intellectual principle. But what is that principle? The language of woke activism suggests it is this. Any historical person associated with slavery or racism is not worthy of public memorialization. Pundits have noted that this reducto ad absurdum of this principle results in exercising not only Confederates, but George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and James Monroe from public honor. Moreover, as Jordan Peterson uncomfortably reminds us, we are kidding ourselves if we think that if we had lived in an earlier time when racism was du jour, we would have bucked the trend. I mean, this is true. It's easy to run around being an abolitionist today, but would you have been an abolitionist in 1850? or 1855? Would you have been this anti-racism crusader in 1835? Or even 1955? Would you have been that? Chances are most Americans would not have been at any particular time before it becomes easy to do so. I mean, this virtue signaling, which is all this is, you know, when you see all these people in Portland standing out there uh, fighting from the one side, all they're doing is virtue signaling their own, and they're projecting, as it's been said, their own identity and and uh, guilt over race or whatever it is. This is what they're doing. They're projecting. They're being Yankees, which is a major problem. It's about you, not about them. It's about making you feel insignificant and stupid. It's not really about them at all even though in a way it is about them because they want to make themselves feel superior to you because they drive a Prius, because they stand out with a trash can and a trash can lid and an umbrella and try to block water cannons. This is all about them. This is why all this stuff is just so stupid. He says, The deeper dilemma with the principle of censoring anyone associated with racism, laudable now the... I'm sorry, labeled now the vilest of sins, is that as Cohen herself acknowledges, social ethical norms are relative and fungible. Americans obsess about racism right now. Three years ago, we obsessed over women's rights, me too. 
Given the volatile, distracted nature of our culture, we will soon shift our gaze elsewhere. Now, I don't know if that's going to be the case. As long as this particular uh, belief system raises money, just look at the SPLC, or uh, is, is able to make political hay, it's going to stay there. As long as people think they can get money or votes off of it, they're going to keep doing it. So I'm not certain it's going to go away, but when they get rid of it all, then what's next? This is the major question. When they've achieved all of their goals, they have to pick something else out. And when they pick something else out, it's going to be something else that people don't want to get rid of. I mean, the entire process of leftism is a buzzsaw. Its goal, it's, it's to consume. It's a cancer. It consumes healthy cells and tears them apart. That's the whole point of it. This is why if you look at the French Revolution, it consumed everything and then had to go back to tradition because people realized, oh my gosh, what have we just done? When I say go back to tradition, this is Robespierre coming up with the Church of Reason, essentially. they got to have religion. they got to have something. This is where Napoleon was able to bring back the Catholic Church because he realized people in France needed it. Look at, look at Russia and how traditionalist they've become in terms of religion, the Russian people. It was still there, but with Putin going so far with, uh, to the traditionalist side, he recognized that one of the things that the communists did, they tried to destroy it, but they, can never, they never could, and so it's come back with a vengeance. They're building churches like crazy in Russia. So eventually people will wake up to this. But as long as it sells, it lets you raise money, and it gets you votes, people will still talk about it. Now, at some point, I don't know if enough Americans get tired of it, and they just get tired of all the blaming and everything else, and they say, look, we're not, deal- we're not talking about this anymore. This is stupid. But I don't think that's the case. I mean, look at the Republican convention. They went out of their way last night to focus on race because they think this is what Americans want to talk about. And... In many cases, that's because the left makes it what Americans talk about. But there's so many other things. I mean, it's really silly here in 2020 that we're still fighting a war that took place 150 years ago. It's silly in so many ways. It really is silly that that, that event is still the most important thing in American society. When we've got we, our, our economy is being destroyed and the government is taking part in that, but yet everyone's focusing on some monuments. It's deflection, because they know they can, keep that, they can keep that riled up, and then they can do whatever they want on the other side. He says, then school boards and town councils will begin the process again, eliminating public memorialization of those deemed guilty of sexism, bigotry, economic exploitation, animal cruelty, or really anything. Once one scapegoat has been purged, someone else, a former innocent, must take his place, says Georgetown professor Joshua Mitchell in American Awakening, Identity Politics and Other Afflictions of Our Time. And after virtue, philosophical, uh, philosoph- philosophical. philosopher Alastair McIntyre argues that the dominant ethical theories of the secular West are inherently emotivist and subjective. This is a very important book, and I've talked about it on this podcast before. If you've never read After Virtue, you should read it. Because I've gotten into emotivism. Emotivism is dangerous as, because these things elicit an emotional response. Racism is bad. It makes me feel bad or animal cruelty, or whatever it is. These things make me feel bad, so I'm going to vote. This is why I say they're not going to go away. 
They do have to be transferred to something else, but as long as they're able to get you money or votes, people are going to talk about it. He explains, whatever criteria, principles, or evaluative allegiances the emotivist self may profess, they are to be construed as expressions of attitudes, preferences, and choices, which are themselves not governed by criterion, principle, or value. Our ethical appeals are essentially assertive rather than descriptive of reality. Calling racism the worst unforgivable sin is an emotive, unverifiable, ethical assertion, not an objective principle. The worst sin can, be, can easily be altered by the unstable winds of public sentiment to say something else. Sexism, bigotry, exploitation, animal cruelty, whatever. Well, this is true. Uh, so we, we put these things. And I, I, Herschel Walker last night at the uh, RNC said the worst thing Donald Trump has ever been called is a racist. So you see, this is exactly what, what uh, McIntyre is talking about and what Chalk is talking about. I mean, this is where our... Our uh, intellectual process has carried us in the 21st century. But as he says, that has no descriptive, it, it's, it's essentially assertive. I mean, this is, this is subjective. It's subjective. As he, it's subjective. This is the worst. But how do we know? I mean, where do, we, where do we weigh that? We think it is, but that's because just we think it is right now. But what is it going to be 20 years from now? This is compounded by an unacknowledged, unverified philosophy that Decrees contemporary society simply by virtue of being contemporary is the most ethical in history. Like a motivist ethics, the, this premise relies on no objective criteria, but is simply and haughtily asserted. This is the fallacy of presentism, or what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. On what basis are we, are we presumed superior to all of our forefathers? Simply because we're in the present? If we are, if we, if, if, yet, if we examine a criterion like family stability... We're actually doing quite worse than previous generations, deeply damaging not only our children, but widening societal inequality. So how do we, I mean, again, this is all subjective. He could say, well, this is the worst thing. And is he right or wrong? We're all becoming sophists in many ways. Everything is relative. And every generation thinks they're better than the previous generation. This is, prob this is primarily because of a linear perspective of history. Progress, right? That's the real issue here. It's progress. A linear perspective of history that everything is going up at all times. And every day we're getting better in every way. Whereas the Greeks didn't think of it that way. Things were secular. Uh, so cyclical, I should say. They, they, they go in, in, a, in a circle. Cohen claims we should be proud to participate in this process. But this amounts to patting ourselves on the back for honoring only those that reflect the zeitgeist rather than any objective eternal principle. This is akin to a sports fan dispensing with his team merchandise for another team that just won the championship and congratulating himself for wearing paraphernalia of the winning team. Such a fan honors the latest winners, who are, for the most part, enjoying the most public commendation. But what's praiseworthy about that? If anything, it's emblematic of being fickle and unprincipled. Fairweather fans. I mean, look, Tom Paine called them out, called out Fairweather fans in the American War for Independence, and he called them suns, uh, you know, sunshine patriots the summer soldier and sunshine patriot. But you see this. I mean, why are there so many New York Yankee fans? Why are there so many Boston Red Sox fans when the Red Sox are winning World Series? Well, because, well, that's the latest winner. And the, the, winning produces bandwagoners. Well, I'm going to root for that team because they win. It's what happens. But you're unprincipled. Uh, and you don't have any tradition. You're not, you're not pulling that tradition the hardest thing to do is the most 
Diehard fans, you know, Chicago Cubs fans, when they never won anything, or a team that never wins anything, they've never won a championship, and yet the fans still show up. Those are principled fans, and tradition has that, right? If you abandon these people, our attachment to the past, simply because we think, well, they held views that aren't like ours, well, what are you? You're a Fairweather fan. Moreover, in writing as a former public high school history teacher, Cohen's claims that this renaming trend is happening now because of new historical data is absurd. When did we not know Woodrow Wilson was a racist or that John Tyler Edward Hand and Philip Schuyler owned slaves? This has been public, widely discussed knowledge, both by historians and public school social studies curricula for decades. Rather, we are making revised ethical assertions about their relative worth of these people's historical influence in light of volatile popular mores. This is exactly true. Everyone knew these things. It's just that we were willing to accept them in a normal time for what they were and still call them great men. This is why uh, the idea of exploring what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition is important. Because there's value in these people outside of who they were and what we might consider moral failings today. That's an important distinction to make. Everyone knew these things, but these people were great men, not because of these things, but because of these other things. And that's why we respected them. We need a more rational, objective method for determining who we honor in history. One approach with ancient roots in Aristotle is to honor those whose lives in some, albeit in perfect sense, reflected a universal, objective good, like the cardinal virtues of courage, justice, prudence, and temperance. Another Commanded by uh, historian Wilfred McClay in his magisterial American history textbook, Land of Hope, is to honor those who patriotically sought, however imperfectly, to make this nation a better place for its citizens. Such traits, virtue, and patriotism are recognized as eternally worthy of emulation. They're also intended to instruct descendants inherently inclined to forget them. If schools or public art must only and always reflect the ever-shifting emotions and opinions of the zeitgeist, they only serve a self-congratulatory function. We self-righteously laud ourselves for our woke sensibilities, seemingly ignorant that the fickle, increasingly ignorant mob will one day come for us for our own misdeeds. This is narcissistic, self-destructive, and self-destructive to our societal preservation. For future generations, America must do better. Thankfully, our forefathers provided an alternative method if we're still capable of hearing them. This is a great... uh, This is a great essay. I mean, I think he hits at the Aristotelian part of this. Aristotle himself is now under attack because Aristotle was pro-slavery. I mean, he was. Uh, so what do we get rid of Aristotle? How about Plato? I mean, Socrates? Do we get rid of everything in Western civilization that does not fit a woke sensibility? This is the major question for our time, and I think one that we should all work to answer Uh, It's an uphill fight because the other side seems to be winning left and right. But I think, uh, and it's it's a complicated fight. It's hard to it's hard to combat emotivism. It's hard to do because emotion is a powerful tool. It's not a logical tool. It's an illogical tool. Emotion is never logical. It can't be. I mean, this is why we write songs about it. It's not logical, but. Uh, politics should be logical. Unfortunately, it's not. So I like this essay. I think Chalk did a nice job of bringing these things out. That's why I wanted to talk about it in a different perspective on these particular issues from philosophy. Or he's saying this is a philosophical question. It is. It's all about philosophy. 
And I think that's um, a nice way to look at it. All right. So when you when you are wrestling with these things, thinking locally, acting locally, and your local communities, remember, this is where this stuff has to happen. Remember, the people that you're arguing against are, are facing an emotional response to these things. You can't fight mo- emotion with reason. It has to be another emotional response. And all they're going to say, but on the other hand, all they're going to say, if you come with an emotional response, well, that's, your emotion doesn't matter because my emotion is more important. <laughs> so this is where it's going to be very hard to, to confront this and why McIntyre was so scared about it when he wrote After Virtue. All right. Hope you enjoyed this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. I will see you next time. See you then.